Hello, Dan Alasso with History for Today, and this will be another installment in this series on note-taking, research, and writing. So sometimes people feel a sense of writer's block at the beginning of a new project, but often that feeling comes from a kind of a misunderstanding. In the book How to Take Smart Notes, Sunke Ahrens criticizes writing teachers, actually, who encourage their students to brainstorm to come up with a topic for an essay or for a research project. I think processes that include free association and a sort of informal openness to surprising combinations of ideas can be very useful, especially in group settings. However, I do tend to agree with Aaron's that if I'm doing the work of making reading notes and then turning them into permanent notes and then evergreen insights, then coming up with a topic to write about ought to be the very least of my concerns. The whole point of this note-taking process is not only to provide us with ideas that we want to pursue, but to actually show us which ideas we are most interested in. And we'll see this process in action as we continue. Right now, though, let's look at the first stage in the process, evaluating sources and highlighting the ideas that we find. When you read a book and highlight and then record your impressions and your thoughts, and when you take lecture notes, you're beginning the writing process. Yes, you're recording information that might be on the exam, but you're also engaging with and evaluating an argument. And I'll talk more about arguments in just a minute. In books, articles, and even in lectures, the author isn't just reciting some random assortment of facts. Even if they seem very natural and spontaneous, most lectures and discussions are built around a central question or an idea. If the lecturer doesn't come right out and tell you what it is, try to figure it out. Does the syllabus give lecture titles? Are they in the form of a question? That's a clue. Is there a framing question at the beginning of a discussion? If that question wasn't apparent to you, didn't come to you in class, then review your notes later and try to boil down the lectures or the discussion's theme into a sentence or two. And if you're really stumped, just ask. Boiling important ideas that you encounter down into a sentence or two is a key skill that you'll be learning in this process. Taking a complex narrative from literature, taking a textbook chapter, taking a primary source or a lecture, and being able to say, this is what that was about. This is a crucial step in the journey from hearing about the knowledge of others to creating your own knowledge. And as you find ideas that interest you, write them down. Review your lecture notes sometime after class, preferably before the test, and jot down the ideas that stood out to you. These ideas probably will be related to the point that the lecturer was trying to make, but also probably will be a little bit unique. Some specific things may have caught your attention that may not be exactly the same as the things that the person sitting right next to you may have noticed. As long as you don't completely ignore what the lecturer or the author was trying to say, then following what interests you is usually a very good idea. You'll want to take notes when you read, too. As we go through this, we're going to show you a bit about how writers work, how they generally organize arguments, how they generally use setting and point of view to create atmosphere and mood, how they generally present narrators and characters to engage problems, other similar techniques. And these are valuable clues to help you determine what a text might mean in general. 
And after you get that, your task will be to analyze them in the specific context of the text that you're reading and interpret how they make that particular verbal contraption work. You might find that once you get used to it, that such active reading doesn't diminish, but actually increases the pleasure of reading. In a way, this is kind of like opening Pandora's box. It's very difficult to close it later. So now a couple of words on arguments. I mentioned that one of the things you'll be doing as you engage with a text is evaluating an argument. Now, while any statement can be thought of as an argument, there's a more specific definition of the term that I want to use. Under most circumstances, any deliberate statement that qualifies as a text worth engaging with is likely to have a main point that its creator is trying to make. Some will also have subpoints, but they will typically serve the main point. That is the text's argument. Now, humans have been writing and reading for thousands of years, so it shouldn't surprise you at all that people have been trying to work out the details of these processes for quite a long time. One of the most famous writers about writing in the European ancient world was Aristotle, who lived from 384 to 322 BCE. He was a student of Plato in Athens, and he later became a teacher of Alexander the Great in Macedon. Aristotle was interested in a lot of subjects, including philosophy, physics, biology, ethics, geology, and logic. In his writing on rhetoric, Aristotle analyzed statements and identified some of the characteristics of argument that we still use today. Aristotle found that logic was a main ingredient of many, but not all, arguments. You might recognize this logical sequence. All rabbits are mammals, Spots is a rabbit, therefore Spots is a mammal. Aristotle calls this a syllogism, and he recognized it as the most powerful type of argument. You can see how it's sort of impossible to argue with the conclusion once you've accepted the validity of the two premises. If you can organize your argument in this way, moving from agreed-on premises to an irrefutable conclusion, you're likely to convince a lot of people. Of course, most of the time, we don't really have the advantage of being able to argue from premises that are incontrovertible facts. Sometimes, our job is to show our readers new facts in order to lead them to our new original conclusion. These can be newly discovered ideas, or they can be ideas that the reader may not have ever considered in the context that we're going to suggest. More often, however, what we're really arguing about is the truth of those premises. We live in a world of uncertainty, after all. Because of this uncertainty, many of our arguments are based on premises that are tentative, leading to probable rather than certain absolute conclusions. However, sometimes we do go to great lengths to pretend that our premises are certain and that our conclusions are irrefutable. Now, all of this may seem ridiculously abstract. We don't spend much time nowadays dissecting and disassembling the way we think and looking at the parts. But stick with it, because it's important. When a political leader makes a claim such as markets should be unregulated, or we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, there's usually a trail of argument behind that. If you want to understand and especially if you want to challenge a claim, the best place to look is with the premises that lead to the conclusion. 
This form of argument that we've been looking at is called deduction. It builds from accepted facts to a specific conclusion. There are two other forms that you should know about. Induction goes more or less in the opposite direction, starting with observations or evidence, like data in a scientific experiment, and ending with a general conclusion. Because in the real world, we never have a chance to look at all the data, these conclusions are, by definition, tentative. But in day-to-day -day life, we often take inductive ideas as facts. We know what's going to happen when we throw a ball, not because we've studied physics and calculus, but because we've done it before and we've experienced the results. Even so, careful scientists still talk about the theory of gravity or the theory of evolution. They don't do this because they're in any doubt that the theory is correct. They do it because there's always a possibility that new evidence will be found that will require them to adjust or modify the theory. Einstein's general relativity did this to Newton's theory of gravitation. It didn't refute what Newton had said, but it made it a little bit more complicated. The point is that inductive reasoning is supposed to follow where the data leads it. But the other equally important point is that it's much easier to use evidence to prove that a statement is wrong than to prove that it's correct. As a famous living author has recently observed, paraphrasing an even more famous dead author, you can look at white swans swimming in your lake all your life and not prove the theory that all swans are white. You only need to see one black swan to disprove the theory, however. Aristotle identified a third form of argument that may surprise you narrative. Stories and anecdotes persuade us because we identify with the people and the situations of the story, and because we understand the ways that stories work and we expect them to unfold in ways that make sense. A Nobel Prize winning psychologist recently warned of what he called narrative fallacies, and he paraphrased that living author of the Black Swans that I just mentioned by describing narrative fallacies as, in his words, how flawed stories of the past shape our views of the world and our expectations for the future. In fact, he said, the less actual information we have, the more compelling the narrative seems. Finally, a famous recently deceased historian defined history itself as what he called a verbal artifact that historians use to combine a certain amount of data, theoretical concepts for explaining these data, and a narrative structure for their presentation. A good story can sometimes make up for sparse data or for sketchy interpretation. Great storytelling can sometimes take the place of data or induction, or even of agreed on facts, deduction, in an argument. The most powerful stories can reach beyond that logical appeal to reason, bringing the emotions of the reader or the audience into play. Fear, pride, contentment, resentment, love, and moral outrage are all powerful elements of argument. So it's important to be able to recognize whether a writer is appealing to reason or to emotion. And then, of course, it's important to ask why. So I'll continue talking about the types of things that you may want to make note of as you're reading and the ways to highlight and make your notes. But that's been all for now. So I hope people found this interesting. Thanks very much for listening. And I'll
see you again.